As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me at the beginning of Great and Holy Lent. This is take number two of attempting to record our Bible study this week, because apparently I forgot to update the computer that I use for all of this, and when your MacBook isn't updated, it apparently doesn't want to work well with Adobe Edition, and all of the files from Wednesday's recording when we were live were corrupted. So I figured for all of you who are at home, rather than having you miss out on the beginning of a new gospel book, I would sit down and re-record the content that we went over during our live session on Wednesday. So last week we capstoned the gospel according to St. Mark. We spent 14 weeks walking slowly through St. Mark's gospel account, and when one chapter ends, it's time for another to begin. And as we begin the liturgical chapter of Great and Holy Lent, it's also fitting that we're beginning a new gospel account. And that account of the gospel that we're going to be going over is the gospel according to St. Luke. And after we finish the gospel according to St. Luke, we will also be touching upon its sequel, the Acts of the Apostles. This is going to be a rather long undertaking, considering that the chapters are longer, that uh, we're dealing with two books, and Lord knows I love to ramble and don't know how to piss pace myself. But, God willing, if it's fit and right for us to be able to walk through this gospel account, we will make it to the end at some point. So now, as we look towards the beginning of the gospel according to St. Luke, I think it's important for me to present you with some introductory content, laying the foundation and giving us an understanding of some of the background behind this gospel account. So, if we know that the Gospel according to St. Mark was written roughly around 70 AD, uh, the dating that comes around for this Gospel account is roughly around 85 AD. Uh, and we know from the introduction that we'll get into of the Gospel that St. Luke, when he was writing his account, used multiple sources, both living and written, hypothetically, to compile his narrative. So we can assume that St. Luke may have had a manuscript of St. Mark's account of the gospel, and we can assume this not only because of the time frame, but we can also understand it from this perspective. The overlap that we see in a lot of the narrative structures between Mark and Luke can indicate to us that St. Luke had an understanding of St. Mark's gospel account. And if we see within what's considered the quote-unquote we sections of the Acts of the Apostles that St. Mark and St. Luke are both associates of St. Paul, then we can also see that St. Mark and St. Luke knew one another. 
And it's not a stretch for us to say that maybe St. Luke had the manuscript or one of the manuscripts for the Gospel according to St. Mark in front of him when he was writing this narrative. And as I mentioned with this quote-unquote we section, within the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we see the narrative take a turn. We see the term we used where it hasn't been used before. And this could have just been a way of the author presenting the narrative, but that wouldn't make sense considering we're 16 chapters in before he takes this first-person approach to expressing the circumstances within his book. So that can be an indication to us that St. Luke, the person who is with St. Paul within those accounts, is the very person who is writing this gospel account. Now, he's very cryptic, as all of the evangelists are, because within these gospel accounts, you don't hear the evangelists identify themselves directly. But that doesn't mean that they weren't identified by the church. That doesn't mean that people didn't know who it was who wrote these books, or rather, who it was that was leading the communities that brought these books to be. So I think it's important for us to realize where this gospel account is rooted. So that way we can see kind of how the scriptures came together. The scriptures did not fall out of the sky and were handed to us by God. They were guided by the Holy Spirit. They were formed by the life of the church. And it wasn't until, as we see within these past two gospel accounts that we've spoken about, the late 70s, early 80s of the first century, that we begin to see a written narrative of all of the things that had transpired, that being the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the birth of the church. Yet the scriptures were already being proclaimed. The gospel was already being proclaimed to all nations before the gospel was written in the manuscript forms that we have in front of us today in the form of the Bible. And this is to show us that the tradition of our church and the scriptures are very closely interrelated. The tradition is our way of participating within the scriptures, and the scriptures are the manifestation and invitation of God's love for us. So when we read the scriptures, that's an invitation for us to be able to participate within the broader tradition of our faith. And when we participate within a life in Christ or the tradition of our church, what we're doing is embodying the message of the scriptures. So you can't have one without the other. There's no separation between the two because both feed into each other and both build each other up. Both are part of the church as a whole. And we can see that if St. Luke was close to St. Paul, well, it's from St. Paul that he also gains a lot of the sources for this narrative. In the same way that St. Mark learned from St. Peter, and he's the one from whom he decided to write his narrative of the gospel. So here's what we know. We know that St. Luke was an associate of St. Paul. We also know that St. Luke was a physician. And this will be made all the more clear when we see a theme within this gospel account, which is going to be a focus on healings. And the way that St. Luke focuses on healing is not only to show us that Ultimately, Christ has come to liberate us from all of our infirmities and reorient us towards the Father. But he also has a fascination with the illnesses that are overcoming these poor individuals. The terminology that St. Luke will use is different than most of the other synoptic gospels when referring to the various ailments that people are overcome with. So that can be an indicator to us that he was a physician. 
But we also know that he was a physician because St. Paul says as much in the book of Colossians. So if we know that St. Luke is this person who's following St. Paul, then it can be very clear to us that this same St. Luke was a physician. So that just builds a little more of this painting of who St. Luke was. Another aspect of the tradition that we know is that St. Luke is known as one of the first iconographers. And the reason why that's an important aspect of our tradition isn't because of the act of painting an icon exclusively, but rather it's because of whom he painted that icon of. St. Luke is said to have painted an icon of the Theotokos, the Mother of God. And if that's the case, that means that St. Luke was close with the Theotokos at one point. And we can assume, as we walk through this first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, that it's from her that he receives this early infancy narrative account. Because no one else was there that could have given him this information. Zachariah and Elizabeth, as we're going to meet, they had both long since passed away. And the same with Joseph. The Theotokos was the only one who was left. And if we believe that St. Luke, the evangelist, painted an image of her, an icon of her, well then we know that he was close to her. We know that she was one of his sources. So I think it's important for us to realize all of these things are important. We know that St. Luke is a physician. We know that St. Luke was close to St. Paul and received an account from him. We know that St. Luke was also at one point with the Theotokos and learned from her. But I think it's important for us to see two more emphases that St. Luke makes without within his gospel account. And the first is he paints an image of salvation history. When St. Luke sets out to write his account of the gospel, he is setting out to write a history, a history of God's saving works in his creation. And we'll see that in the third chapter of St. Luke's gospel, because St. Luke will give a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God, leading all the way up to Christ, who is also the son of God, showing that through all of the scriptures and through all of human history, God's saving works have been at play, and now they have fully manifested themselves in the person of Jesus Christ, the Logos incarnate, God made man. This is important for us to realize because it will explain the systematic way, in a sense, that St. Luke sets out his narrative. His narrative is not a history in the modern factual sense that we think of, but rather it's a history within a classical Greek sense. So in the same way that the Iliad talks about the Peloponnesian War in a way that is dramatized, St. Luke will do the same thing with his narrative. But his plan when he's doing this is to give an accurate account as we'll read within his prologue. In the second emphasis, that's a through line throughout both Luke and Acts, as is salvation history and the birth of the church, is the work of the Holy Spirit within the church. The Holy Spirit has been mentioned before, but St. Luke will very much so emphasize the saving works of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ, within the church, throughout his entire gospel account. And this is unique compared to the gospel according to St. Mark or the gospel according to St. Matthew. St. John has his own theological intent with his gospel account. But for our purposes, it's important for us to realize that as we are reading this gospel account. This gospel account points us towards why the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, because it's through the Holy Spirit that all of these great works are made manifest. It's through the Holy Spirit that Zechariah is going to have the vision 
that his son will be born and he will see the angel. It's through the Holy Spirit that Elizabeth will be made pregnant. It's through the Holy Spirit that Christ will become incarnate within the virgin's womb. So as we're walking through this gospel account and as we're breaking down each of these pericopes, I think it's important for us to realize that what we are witnessing is a history in a sense. It's a history of God's saving love for his creation that stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament in history writ large, to the incarnation, resurrection, incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, rather. And after Christ rises on the third day and then ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost. And salvation is continued to be shared through the Spirit with the world. So we need to actually take a moment as we're breaking down these sections to appreciate how the Spirit works within the world. Because we don't believe that the Spirit is a power of the Holy Trinity, or that the Spirit is a power of Christ or the Father. We believe that the Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, who is one in essence and inseparable from the Father and the Son. And it's through this account of the Gospel that this painting is made all the more clear to us. So with all of that introductory content out of the way, before I ramble on any further, we will begin chapter 1 of the Gospel according to St. Luke, with St. Luke's prologue. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those of whom the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. So here we see that St. Luke has a very unique introduction. And his introduction is a preface, a dedication, to the person who hypothetically is commissioning this gospel account, that is, the most excellent Theophilus. And we see within verse 1, St. Luke tells us that insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us. So what he's saying here is that there have been others who have attempted to compile narratives of what has happened, that is, with the coming of Christ, his ministry, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. Yet he sees that it is fitting for him to begin this undertaking as well. Within verse 2, we see an acknowledgement, and it's that St. Luke is not an eyewitness himself of the things that have come to pass. Rather, he's a third-hand source in a sense. But what he is doing is he's doing his best to compile his sources. He's doing his best to compile his data from those who were eyewitnesses, from those who were around and knew Christ, such as the Theotokos, as we mentioned, and St. Paul. And it's for these reasons, well, these relationships that he had, and this information that he had, that he sees it as good for him also, having followed closely all the things that have come to pass, to write an orderly account. And the reason why he's writing this orderly account is so that this person, the most excellent Theophilus, may know the truth concerning the things which have taken place, which he has been informed about. If we look at this from a historical perspective, within the first two to three centuries of the church's history, we have this mass influx of Christians. 
but all who were following after Christ were also being persecuted. Because we also have endless accounts of martyrdoms that are taking place. So much so that the Romans are confused because all they want is to have these individuals worship their idols. And yet, as the Christians are confronted with foregoing their Lord in favor of worshiping an idol, they choose death over worshiping that idol. Because their life in Christ is more important to them than worshiping a false god. Now, the Romans are confused by this because this is just something that they do. They offer sacrifices and they just hope that everything's going to continue to go well. It's something that's part of their society, something that they have always done. And yet these Christians won't do this simple task, this task that is simple within their eyes. And in fact, these Christians are going off in droves to their death. And as one Christian after another continues to die, paying witness to their Lord, we see time and time again more and more people following in their footsteps. This is the historical reality that you can't get around within the first three centuries AD. It's that hundreds of thousands of people continued to follow in the footsteps of these great martyrs. And ultimately, they were all following in the footsteps of Christ who initially offered his life for the life of the world. And so this is the clarity that St. Luke is trying to bring in his account of the gospel. The clarity of why are all of these people doing this? Why are all of these people forgoing all that they have to follow Christ? And it's for that reason that we see St. Luke's message is universal. St. Luke's gospel message is not to an ethnic group. Because in Christ, as St. Paul tells us, there's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither Greek nor Jew. Rather, all are one in Christ Jesus. So if that's the case, and that's the understanding that we have from St. Luke, well, within St. Luke's salvation history, he's telling all, including this most excellent Theophilus, the things that have come to pass, the coming of the Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ. So moving on to verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we see St. Luke painting the stage here, setting the stage here. He gives us a time period for when this gospel account is taking place by expressing who was the king, King Herod of Judea. After that, he introduces us to the first characters of this narrative, as Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are of a priestly class, or of a priestly birth. And we see that that leads to their nobility being expressed. So they are people of service. They are people of ministry. And they are both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But then within verse 7, we see that there's something else that they're dealing with. They have no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And, to add to all of that, both of them are advanced in years. Barrenness within the Old Testament is seen as a curse, in a sense. It's a curse because it's a blessing to be able to have children. And if a family is not able to have children, then they're not able to participate in that joy. Yet, we can't confuse a curse with evil on behalf of the couple. 
they're not cursed in the sense that we think of within some magical systematic perspective where either they did something bad so now they're unable to bear children because we see that they're both righteous before God walking in all of his commandments and ordinances blameless so if they didn't do something bad that led to them being quote-unquote cursed then what is this curse that we speak of well the curse is the curse of sin it was intended for humanity to be able to experience all aspects of joy and children are part of that equation yet because of sin because of the corruptedness of the world, because of our negative actions, these two people are unable to bear a child. That's just the reality of the world that they're living in. But when it's identified as being a curse within the Old Testament, that is identifying that reality rather than articulating some bad thing that they did that led to them now being in the state. And I think it's important for us to realize that St. Luke intentionally, within verse 6, tells us that they're both righteous before God, walking in all of his commandments and ordinances, blameless in the sight of the Lord, because that's an indicator to us that this state that they're in is not because of their actions, because they're righteous, but rather it's the prefigure all of the good that is to come. Because in their old age, as we're going to see in the next section, they will conceive a child. Something that was seemingly impossible, although we have Old Testament references that will tell us that this has happened before. Because all things through God are possible. So moving on to verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he will drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what we see here is that when it was time for Zechariah to perform his priestly service, he left the hill country where he lived with his wife Elizabeth, and he went to the temple to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. Now, as all of the people are praying outside at the hour of incense, at the hour of the sacrifice, Zechariah enters the temple as the priest. And when he is there, there appears to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, the location of this angel is an indication of his status. We've been told that he's an angel, a messenger of the Lord. But even if we weren't given this detail, we would know his nobility based upon him standing at the right hand of the altar, at the right hand of glory, because that's what the right side symbolizes. So while the angel is standing at the right side of the altar of incense, Zechariah is troubled when he sees him. And it's said that fear comes upon him. Now, this is typical of interactions between humanity and angelic beings within the whole Old Testament. Because when we are confronted with that which we don't understand, which we can hardly perceive, our initial response is that of fear and trembling. Now, 
this isn't because we're afraid in some sense that we're overcome by anxiety, but rather it's a reverence. It's more of an awe. And it's for that same reason within the divine liturgy, right before we receive communion, the priest will come out and say, with the fear of God and with faith and love draw near. It's this fear that is a sign of respect. It's this fear that is an acknowledgement, if you will, of how great this thing is, which is beyond our comprehension. And it's that same experience that Zechariah and his forefathers through the Old Testament experienced when they saw a messenger of the Lord, or when they saw the Lord himself. But the angel says to him, don't be afraid. So the angel notices that he's afraid, and he tells him, okay, don't be afraid, because I've come to give you good news. Your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. I think it's important for us to realize here that it's vague as to what his prayer was for. Zechariah is here as the high priest, and if the prayer that is taking place right now is the prayer of sacrifice, then he is making a prayer on behalf of all of the people who are outside, on behalf of all of Israel, rather than the prayer for his self to have a son. And this would be, again, part of Zechariah's righteousness. Because if Zechariah was walking in all the ordinances of the Lord, and he was doing the best job that he could as a priest, making sacrifices on behalf of the people, well then, he wouldn't be standing in front of the altar of incense, alone, as was the custom for the priest at that time, and asking God for something for himself. Because it's not selfish for him to want a child. But again, we know that he's already past that point in his life. He knows that Elizabeth is beyond the years of bearing children. And he's old himself. So the prayer we can assume here from the people who are outside and the role that Zechariah is playing isn't for a child specifically but rather it's for the redemption of Israel. It's for the redemption of God's people. And as we're going to see as this child is explained, that redemption is ultimately going to manifest itself in the coming Messiah, whom this child, this prophet, is going to prefigure, is going to prepare the people to receive. And that's why within verse 14, we see that Zechariah will experience joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at the birth of this child. So here's the natural response. The child is born. He has been highly anticipated. And not only his parents, but their friends are going to experience joy and gladness as he comes. But this child has work to do. And to be able to do that work, he is going to have to make vows, and he is going to have to prepare himself in rather extreme ways. He's going to be great before the Lord, and he's not going to drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So he will be constantly preparing himself. That's what we see here where he will make this vow of not drinking wine or strong drink. And from his mother's very womb, as we're going to see later on in this chapter, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is this first expression of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, within St. Luke's Gospel account. And it's through the Holy Spirit that the prophets prophesy. It's through the Holy Spirit that St. John is going to make straight the way of the Lord. And then we see within verse 16 that he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. So all of those who have deviated from the Lord, St. John's purpose is going to be reorienting them, preparing them for what is to come. And then verse 17 we see, 
and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready the Lord a people prepared. So within this final verse of this section, we see a prefiguration of Christ, because St. John, like all of the saints, is ultimately pointing towards the Messiah. He's ultimately trying to reveal to us Jesus, the coming Christ. And it's for that reason that he is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. St. John is not a reincarnation of Elijah. He's not putting on the essence of Elijah, but rather he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's embodying the characteristics of Elijah. And like Elijah, he's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to shake the people of Israel out of their slumber. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. So he's going to reunify divisions. He is going to help the disobedient perceive wisdom of the just. And he's going to make ready ultimately for the Lord a people who are prepared in the best way that he can. This is going to be the role of St. John. And he is following in the footsteps of just parents who are going to form him. And it's for this reason that Elizabeth was barren. Because it wasn't until the time when all of these things were to be made manifest. When a virgin was to conceive, as we're going to see in the next section, in her womb, the Son of God, that the forerunner must come. Because he is the forerunner. He is the one who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. So if all of these things didn't come to pass in the way that they have, then the narrative would not unfold by God's ultimate will. So moving on to verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you, and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he made signs to them, and remained dumb. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she hid herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among men. So Zechariah says to the angel, How shall this be? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So all of the things that the angel has just told him that are come to pass, Zechariah now questions. He's looking for a sign. And this is traditional when we see accounts of angels making revelations to people. It's good, in a sense, to test these spirits, to discern whether or not they're truly of God. And so Gabriel, the angel, reveals himself by telling him his name. And he tells him that he stands in the presence of God, and he was sent to speak to him, and to bring him this good news. Yet because he did not believe immediately the things that were said to him, he's not going to be able to speak for the day, all of these days until what has been prefigured comes to pass. He was looking for a sign, and his muteness is the sign that he's given. This will be contrasted with the Theotokos, as we'll see in the next section, because it's through her belief and her willingness of being the handmaiden of the Lord that Christ comes into the world. And yet Zechariah here has 
all of these examples throughout the Old Testament of old, barren people conceiving children. And yet he doesn't believe. But this little girl who we'll see in the next section, who knows the scriptures well because she was raised within the temple, doesn't have a single example of a virgin conceiving a child. And yet she says to the same angel, that will be done. Now this isn't painting Zechariah in a negative light. Because again, Zechariah is righteous within the sight of the Lord. But within his questioning, we see the greatness of the Theotokos highlighted. Because even though she'll question how these things will come to pass, she doesn't question the will of God. Where Zechariah has all of these examples throughout the Old Testament of Abraham and Sarah and so on, conceiving in their old age that should allow for him to know that these things will pass. Yet as a sign to not only the people and ultimately to Zechariah, he will be mute. And so when he comes out, he can't speak to them. And the people perceive that he sees a vision. Why? Because, first of all, he was in there for a long time. They're starting to wonder, okay, well, what's going on in there? Because ever since the destruction of the first temple within the Old Testament, the Spirit of God has not consumed the altar. God has not been present in the way that he was during the time of the first temple. When he would appear in his theophonic glory cloud, whenever sacrifices were made. So people would go in, they'd make offerings, and they'd come out. And yet Zechariah has been in here for a long time. So the people start to question what's going on in there. Why has he been in there for so long? And then when he comes out, he can't speak to them. He's making signs and he remains dumb. So they perceive that he's seen something. This is again setting the foundation, the groundwork for what is to come. Because when St. John is born... This, again, will be a sign of the coming Messiah. It's for the same reason that after he returns his wife, Elizabeth, she conceives a child. Yet for five months she hides herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked at me to take away my reproach among men. There is no tradition that I could find within my research of women hiding when they became pregnant. And yet, this five-month hiddenness that we see is very intentional for St. Luke's narrative. It isn't because Elizabeth is shamed to now conceive a child, because this child is going to be a great joy to them. But rather, she hides herself so that way there can be a sign to the Theotokos that's given, and that sign that all of the things that she is about to hear from the angel will come to pass, because her cousin, Elizabeth, has conceived a child in her old age. So it's for this reason that Elizabeth hides herself for five months. It isn't because it's shameful that she now has conceive the child, because again, this is a great blessing. This is what they wanted this whole time. It was an injustice that they were unable to conceive. But now, God has brought them justice. He's brought them the forerunner of the Messiah. And because of their patience, because of their faith, and because of their dedication as two people who are part of a priestly class, we see the ultimate forerunner, the final prophet, come about through these two people. So moving on to verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin name was Mary. 
And he came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Zechariah in the temple, is sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. And he appears to a young virgin to whom was, was betrothed to Joseph of the house of David. And this virgin's name is Mary. So Mary, to give us a little background from our church tradition, is presented from a very young age to the temple. And she grows up within the temple serving until she's of the age of puberty. Because after women came to the age of puberty, they were not allowed to be able to serve within the temple because of the mingling of blood through menstruation. So for that reason, you have a tradition of virgins who are dedicated to the temple who would be entrusted to protectors, in a sense, who would be entrusted to older men who would take care of them during their time when they were separated from the temple. We have an example of one of these virgins in the prophetess Anna that we'll see in the next chapter. She has dedicated her whole life to the temple in the same way that Mary is dedicated to the temple. So this will kind of help us understand the relationship between Joseph and Mary more. We don't believe in a young, holy family as we often see in Western icons. Joseph already has children. He's lived his life. He's an older man. And his role is to protect Mary. His role is to care for her because the unfortunate reality of society at that point was women didn't have rights. Women couldn't work. They couldn't take care of themselves in that regard without a husband. So the husband needed to be there to be able to take care of them and make sure that they weren't being forced into hard times. So this is the role of Joseph. The role of Joseph is to be a protector. And this virgin's name is Mary. This virgin is probably about the age of 12 or 14. And yet, when the angel appears to her, he says, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. He's reverencing this little girl. He's calling her the favored one, and he's telling her that the Lord is with her. This type of greeting does not typically happen within the accounts of angels and humans interacting. And we see here that she's greatly troubled at the saying and considers in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. So she's not afraid. She's not overcome with fear in the same way that Zechariah was. In fact, there seems to be a hint of some familiarity happening here. And the angel says to her still, as he does when he greets any human, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So what the angel is saying here is that if it's her will to align her will with God, she will conceive in her, son, in her womb a son and call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And we see here that this Jesus, who she is going to bear in her womb, 
is more than just a promised king that has come to liberate the people of Israel from their oppressors who happen to be the Romans at this time. Because he will be the son of the Most High, as well as the son of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. So he will reign over all of the children of God. And his kingdom will have no end. So he is the Messiah who has been anticipated. But this Messiah is different. This Messiah isn't strictly a military liberator. Rather, he has come, or is coming, in this case, to liberate us ultimately from sin and death. So moving on to verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So what we see is that Mary's response to all of these things that the angel has said to her is to question how these things are to come about. But it's not a questioning of disbelief. Rather, it's a logical questioning that she is bringing before the angel. Because she says to him, How shall this be, since I have no husband? She's betrothed to Joseph. But if we believe, as we do in our tradition, that Mary is ever virgin because she was intended to be one of these virgins in the temple, dedicated to the temple, well then, again, this is another inkling for us that the relationship between her and Joseph isn't that of the typical husband and wife. Rather, it's that of this protector-protectress relationship. Joseph will be her caregiver. And yet... The reality that Mary is dealing with, if she says yes to the will of God, is that she'll be seen as a harlot, in a sense. She hasn't been joined to her husband, she hasn't come into Joseph's home yet, and if she's seen to be pregnant before the time when they've come together, she'll be identified as an adulterer, and the cost of that within these days was stoning. And yet, the angel says to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And it's through, it's through these words that Mary realizes what it is she's being called to do. She's being called to be the mother of God. She's being called to prepare the way in the same way that St. John is preparing the way for the Messiah. And as we see from Mary's response, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In her extreme humility, in her realization of all of the things that are going to come to pass, she still says, Thy will be done. Behold, I am the handmaiden, the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will, according to his will. This is a beautiful passage because it shows us Mary's willingness to cooperate with the will of God. Mary has free will. Mary can say no to the angel. And she can say, okay, this can be for somebody else. Because she realizes all that is going to have to come to pass if she says yes. She knows the scriptures. Again, she was raised within the temple. She is very wise. She questions how these things are going to happen because she doesn't have a husband. 
And yet the angel tells her that all of these things will come to pass through the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. And therefore the child born of her will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is entirely the Son of God. And it's through the Incarnation that he takes on flesh. If we remember from St. John's Gospel, Christ is the Logos who in the beginning brought all into being. So when he takes flesh, he enters into that creation as one of us. And it's through Mary, and it's through Mary's yes, that this is made possible. Salvation history is made possible through the humble response of a 14-year-old girl. Because if Mary said no, in the same way that her foremother Eve said no to the will of God and ate of the fruit, well then, none of salvation would be able to come to pass. Yet in Mary's willingness to be a participant in the will of God, salvation has come into the world. In her humility, Mary becomes a new Eve, as the fathers of the church constantly say throughout our hymnology, because St. Mary, oh, Mary the Theotokos, rather, through her radical obedience and through her radical humility, becomes this icon of the best human being that we can be. The Theotokos, the God-bearer, when she says yes to the will of God, aligns herself fully with that will in the same way that each and every one of us is called to align ourselves with God's will. And it's because of that willingness to be a participant in all that is to come, even though she'll continue to see these foreshadowings of the pain that she will have to suffer because of it. It's because of all of this that joy and the hope of life eternal comes into the world through the humility of this little girl. And it's for that reason that in her yes, the curse which was upon all of us in the form of the fall begins to be lifted. The redemption of Eve takes place through her daughter Mary. So that way, when Christ offers his life for the life of the world, Christ, who is born from the virgin, he may redeem Adam, because the sin of Eve, as we saw in Genesis, was rejecting the will of God. But the sin of Adam is even worse in a sense, because the sin of Adam is not only throwing his wife under the bus, metaphorically, for giving him the fruit, but it's also telling God that it's God's fault, ultimately shirking off the responsibility that he had for his household and leading to the fall. And it's for that reason that Christ takes the sins of the world on his shoulders. It's for that reason that Christ offers his life for the life of the world, taking on that ultimate responsibility. Because his forefather, our forefather, Adam, rejected that responsibility. In the same way that Eve initially rejected the will of God. But well, Mary humbles herself and aligns herself fully with the will of God. And Christ does the same in offering his life for the life of the world. We see the hope of salvation enter into creation. So as we end this week's session of our Bible study, let us meditate upon the beauty of the Theotokos. Mary is truly the greatest human being. She's the best that we have to offer because she was made worthy to receive Christ in her womb. She was made worthy to raise him, form him, and allow for him to be free so he could offer his life for the life of the world. And we see the humility that was necessary for all of that to take place 
in her acknowledgement that, behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. This great statement that she made when she was so young leads to all of the possibilities of salvation that we are now participants in to this day. And it's for this reason that she is the highly favored one who the Lord is with, who we will venerate and hail today as we celebrate the first activist service of the Lenten season. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight, and until next time, I'll talk to you guys all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near the Christ and make his path straight. Amen.